Hello and welcome back to the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Anna Marsh, and today we are going to be focusing on all things oxygenation in this podcast today. So what is oxygenation and why is it important for your fatigue recovery journey? Well, if you listened to the previous episode on blood sugar, you probably heard me say something along the lines of fatigue at the end of the day is the end point of poor ATP production, ATP being the body's energy currency. And how the body makes ATP or how the body makes energy is dependent on many, many different factors, some of which I covered in a previous episode where I talked about the causes of fatigue. So all of those causes which I discussed all result in the end point of poor ATP production. And poor oxygenation could be one of those things or a contributing factor in combination with other things to poor ATP, to poor energy production. And so what we want to cover in this episode today, or shall I rather say what I want to cover in this episode today, is what we want to be thinking about when we consider the fact that our body may or may not be oxygenating well. When I look at these kind of concepts like blood sugar and oxygenation, these are what I would call the low-hanging fruit. The reason why I call them the low-hanging fruit is that they're really accessible and easy to test for. They're easy to identify. They, I wouldn't say easy to address necessarily, but fairly easy to address or fairly straightforward to address um, and inexpensive to address as well. So when I'm working with a client either one-on-one in um, one of my one-on-one packages or even if I'm doing a one-on-one consultation as part of my group program, then what I'm doing is I'm asking these basic questions. How is this person's blood sugar? Is this person oxygenating well? And these are just very easy and accessible things we can address as we work towards the entire big picture of ATP and energy production and obviously the health and well-being that is created when the body has the energy for all the systems to function well. So when we think about oxygenation, what do we want to think about? What do you need to know? Well, one of the first things I like to lead with is that we make the most amount of energy in the presence of oxygen. So energy is made in the mitochondria of the cell and we make the most amount of energy, the most amount of ATP when we burn fat for fuel and we burn fat for fuel in the presence of oxygen. So we need oxygen to get through our nose and through our mouth into our lungs, into our bloodstream. We need it to be transported through the bloodstream, infiltrate into the cells, get into the mitochondria of the cell, and then combine with the fat in the mitochondria of the cell to then be used to create energy. So there's a series of steps involved and any breakdown in that series of steps is going to have an impact on how much energy or ATP that you can make. So we think about it in the context of 
How are you breathing? How are we initially getting oxygen out of the air and into the body through the lungs? That requires good breathing practices. It also requires healthy lung tissue. And your lungs are one of the barriers of the body. We then need to transport the oxygen. So we need to know that our transporting molecules, our red blood cells, are healthy and they're able to do a good job. And then once oxygen is being transported through the red blood cells, we also need to make sure we're moving the body so the blood is circulating around the body. So we need good circulatory health. And then we need oxygen to be able to infiltrate the cells, which means we want healthy cells, healthy cell membranes to support that infiltration process. So it's an entire supply chain and a breakdown in the supply chain is going to potentially create a breakdown in energy production. And that could be a contributing factor in fatigue. So let's dive into each of these steps in the supply chain in a little bit more detail. So the first step to consider is how are you breathing? And the primary thing that I'm asking or I'm looking for when I speak with my clients is, do you breathe through your nose or do you breathe through your mouth? So people who breathe through their mouth tend not to oxygenate as well as people who breathe through their nose. So this is where people may lack awareness. They may not actually even realize that they're mouth breathing during the day. Or perhaps they maybe are conscious of how they're breathing during the day, but they're breathing through their mouth at night. And remember, nighttime is when the body does a lot of its little cleanup jobs. It's a very important time for rest and recovery and repair. And oxygen is going to be a really important part of that rest recovery and repair process and if we're breathing badly at nighttime when we're asleep the body is not going to be at an advantage during those restful hours of the night so we want to consider nasal breathing if you are somebody who is affected by fatigue nasal breathing should be 100% of the time sometimes for example people who are exercising and exercising at high intensity they may need to then start to use their mouth at some point to breathe but that may only be at very very high intensities for very very short spaces of time so most people should be breathing through their nose the entire time especially if fatigue recovery is a goal because you shouldn't be exercising at least at this point in time at an intensity that would encourage you to breathe through your mouth anyway. And that can also be a little nice way to put a little handbrake on yourself if you are somebody who's a little bit gung-ho when it comes to exercise. If you limit yourself to exercise, you can only do through your nose. That's like applying the brakes a little bit on your exercise intensity. Another thing we may want to consider is um, breathing very shallowly. So if you notice that you very seldom actually breathe through your belly and you tend to breathe more into the chest and upper chest and your breath is very shallow, that's potentially going to be something that impacts oxygenation of the body. 
And we tend to do that more so when we're stressed. And this is where we can see an overlap between oxygenation and the nervous system. Because when someone's nervous system is more activated, the breathing may be more rapid, it may be more in the upper chest, versus somebody who is much more centered and grounded and well-regulated, they may tend to breathe more into the belly. So here, if you're very stressed, if you're sitting a lot, if you're quite hunched over, working at a desk, maybe you want to take some breaks throughout your day where you open up the chest, open up the rib cage, do some nice breathing exercises to encourage um, good breathing and flow of breath throughout the day. You might also be told that you snore a lot, maybe a partner's complaints about your snoring. If you're snoring at night, you're probably breathing through your mouth. If you sigh or you yawn often throughout the day, that can also be a sign of poor oxygenation. Sometimes sighing and yawning can also be a discharge from the nervous system. So just understanding the difference between the two, which is maybe something for another day. If you can hear your breathing, if it's very kind of like labored and raspy, oxygenation is probably not great. And if you experience any nasal congestion, because people with nasal congestion may default to breathing through their mouth. So if nasal congestion is an issue for you, that's something you may want to address in your journey towards better oxygenation. So what do you do? If you identify that your breathing is probably something you could be working on as part of your fatigue recovery journey. Well, you want to train nasal breathing. And that might mean actively working on nasal breathing. First of all, when you're at rest, even just lying down to begin with, if you find it quite challenging, then you could practice nasal breathing sitting up. Then you can practice nasal breathing on a little walk and then maybe you can integrate nasal breathing into more intense exercise if, if that's something you're able to do because not everybody who's recovering from fatigue can even walk very much at all, let alone do more intense exercise. You could use mouth taping at night, just get some micropore tape from the chemist Pop it over your mouth to keep your mouth closed at night so you can focus on breathing through your nose. If that feels quite distressing um, initially and activating for your nervous system, then you could maybe just practice um, some mouth taping in the evenings when you're watching TV, for example, and then build up to the confidence to wearing some mouth tape at nighttime. And obviously you want to address any underlying nasal issues. Very common when there is um, maybe mold spores in the nose, when there's digestive issues, when there's inflammation issues, uh, maybe if there's food sensitivities, histamine issues, all of that can impact um, the nasal passages. So that is another podcast for another day. Um, but we do want to make sure that we're addressing as much as possible so that you can breathe adequately through your nose and then once we're breathing we also want to make sure that the air that we're breathing is getting circulated around the body and that means movement and movement is always a tricky one for people with fatigue because you know if I think about the spectrum of my clients have some clients who may only just be walking to the bathroom and back or to the kitchen and back each day to other clients who are building up their exercise tolerance and really getting back into exercising like a 
air quotes, normal human being. So on that spectrum, it's obviously very broad and different people will have a different level of movement capacity. So the guidance I usually give is just little and often within your capacity. So even if you're someone who's only able to walk to the bathroom and back or um, you know to the kitchen and back, there might be little movements or stretches that you can do seated or even in your bed just to get things moving. You can be challenging yourself to do those little walks um, on an hourly basis. And then obviously someone who has a greater capacity, it's not just going to the gym and doing your hour-long workout, but, you know, taking the stairs, parking your car further away at the supermarket, um, building up those 10K steps, not just in one go, but in little intervals throughout the day so that you are um, constantly just working on moving the body. It's great, obviously, for blood flow and oxygenation, but also great for your lymphatic system, getting toxins um, moving out of the body as well. So once we are breathing well and we are circulating oxygen around the body with our movement practices, we also need to make sure that we've got healthy blood cells which are going to transport the oxygen where it needs to go. And that is specifically looking at the red blood cells and the red blood cells being made by the nutrients vitamin B12, folate, iron and vitamin B6. So where there are deficiencies in these nutrients, whether those deficiencies are due to poor consumption or you're consuming enough, but you're not able to actually digest and absorb these nutrients because there's digestive issues, or maybe you're actually burning through a lot of these nutrients, you're using up a lot because of other imbalances that are happening in the body, for example, imbalances in the biochemical process of methylation, which I won't talk about today, but just to give lip service to, then if you're methylating a lot or there's problems with your methylation cycles, then you may have a, an increased need for these nutrients. So We've got various reasons why you may need more of these nutrients and we can begin to identify if there's any issues with the red blood cells and if you perhaps need more of these nutrients for whatever reason by um, using testing, which your doctor will be able to do for you, which is to look at a full blood count, sometimes also called a complete blood count. It just depends who you're talking to. And this full blood count will be able to measure your red blood cells, your hemoglobin levels, and your hematocrit levels. And if you have low red blood cells, low hemoglobin, low hematocrit, that's a sign that there can be anemia in some cases or poor oxygenation of um, an inability to oxygenate the body in an adequate way. The RBC, the red blood cells, the hemoglobin, the hematocrit, they say there's an oxygenation issue. But then we need to maybe dig a little bit deeper and work out what is the problem specifically. And in this case, we'll look at some other markers. So the mean corpuscular volume, MCV, the mean corpuscular hemoglobin, MCH, the MCHC, the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration, 
and the RDW, the red cell distribution width. If there are changes in these markers, that can start to suggest this is an iron problem versus this is a B vitamin problem. And sometimes we can have both, so we need to double check these things, which I'll talk about in a moment. But if you have an elevation in these markers, an elevation in your MCV, your MCH, or your MCHC, that can indicate there maybe is a need for B12 folate or vitamin B6. If these markers are low, that can then suggest that maybe there's an iron issue. The only thing is, what happens if you need B vitamins and iron? We can't always tell exactly from these markers, which is why we then want to look at a few other markers as well. If you then have, um, you've tested your full blood count, the other thing you can also test is your ferritin levels. So ferritin is your body's iron stores. Now the tricky thing about ferritin is that the reference range is really, really huge. And therefore, you know, sometimes I'll have a lot of clients who are within range, shall we call it, but right at the bottom of the reference range. So what you want to know about ferritin, especially if you are experiencing fatigue, is that the ideal amount is about 50 micrograms per liter. So the reference range is actually 10 to 122 micrograms per liter. And so because it's so broad, it's really important to have an idea of what you're aiming for. Of course, if yours is maybe 40 or 55, it's probably not such a big deal, but sometimes I'll have clients who have a ferritin level of 12 and the bottom of the reference range is 10. Then we know we really want to be bumping their ferritin levels up closer towards the middle of the reference range. Um, so that's what we want to know about ferritin. If ferritin is very high, that can sometimes be an indicator of inflammation in the body. Usually if I see a very high ferritin count, then what I'll usually also want to see is what are the other iron markers doing? So we can have total iron and um, total iron binding capacity, which are other markers your doctor can run for you. Or you can always use a private testing company like MediChex, for example. And then sometimes those markers as well can start to give an indication if there's elevation in iron, and that can sometimes be indicative of inflammation. So with ferritin, even though the reference range is so broad, we don't want to be too high up on the reference range. We don't want to be too low down on the reference range. Around about 50 is a good place to be. But you may have also just heard me say that if we have an increase in our MCV, MCH or MCHC, that can be due to the need for B12, folate or vitamin B6. But how do we know which one? Is it all of them? Is it just one? Is it two of them, but not the other one? So this is where I do like to dig a little bit deeper with clients. And I like to recommend organic acid testing. So organic acid testing will tell us about the functional need for these nutrients. So sometimes your doctor will run maybe a serum B12 or a serum folate. And very often with clients, these levels come up normal just because it's a snapshot of how much B12 or folate is circulating in the bloodstream at that point in time. 
But what it's not really telling us is how much it's getting into the cell and doing the job that it's supposed to do. And this is where organic acids can give us that information. And very often I'll see clients with normal serum folate or normal serum B12, and then we'll do the organic acids and they might need more folate or they might need more B12 or they might need more B6. And so the specific markers in case it's relevant is the methylmalonic acid is the best indicator of the need for B12. Figlu, F-I-G-L-U, is the best indicator of the need for folate. And then xanthorenic acid is the best indicator of the need for vitamin B6. So those are what we'd be looking for in an organic acids panel to see which one is it all of them? Is it one of them? Is it two of them? And then we can offer those dosages respectively as required. So if we do start to identify there's a need for these nutrients, we then need to think about, well, why? Why would this be low for this person? And in this case, we think, well, are they just not eating enough of these foods, which can be common for vegan or vegetarians who maybe aren't getting a lot of iron or aren't getting a lot of B12 in their diet. And if that's the case, there's no way around it. These people will have to supplement with iron and B12. But if someone isn't vegan or vegetarian, we could maybe encourage that they consume more of these food sources. They could consume iron-rich food sources, liver, Red meat, for example, would be you know great for B12 and iron. We might also consider maybe there's an issue in the gut. So maybe this person is not digesting and absorbing these nutrients, and that's the issue. Their dietary intake is adequate, but for whatever reason, they're not able to digest and absorb adequate amounts. Or as I've maybe discussed, there might be some sort of loss of these nutrients. So for example, in women with heavy periods, they can use a lot of iron. You know, has this person just been in an accident? Have they lost a lot of blood? Or circling back to digestive health, could there perhaps be a parasite which is feeding on the iron and then starving the human host of getting the iron that they need? So we do want to consider what else may be going on that may be increasing the demand for these nutrients. Then we want to address any digestive issues, make sure the diet has got good amounts and that we're able to digest and absorb them well, add in supplements if necessary, and then monitor. So with the full blood count, it takes about four months for these cells to turn over. So we would want to do the digestive work, do the dietary work, add the supplementation in, and then once we've done all of that, four months later, we can retest and we want to check if these things have improved, if they're getting better, or if we need to dig deeper and consider other reasons why there may be increase in demand for these nutrients in this person's body specifically. And so I touched on the good sources of iron, but also just to say other you know, good sources of B12 could be things like liver, sardines, venison, shrimp, scallops, beef, lamb, eggs, cheese, especially cottage cheese. 
milk, yogurt, and turkey are all good sources of B12. And for folate, um, romaine, lettuce, spinach, asparagus, so a lot of our leafy greens, liver, again, parsley, kelp, spring greens, broccoli, cauliflower, celery, lentils, Brussels sprouts would all be good sources of folate. So then the final thing I wanted to address when it comes to oxygenation is blood pressure. So our blood pressure is essentially what regulates the flow of blood around the body. You know, with low blood pressure or anyone who has experienced low blood pressure before, you'll know you get very lightheaded and dizzy because there's not enough blood going up to your brain. And so if there's not enough blood going up to your brain, it means that that brain tissue is not getting the energy that it needs to produce oxygen. And often hand in hand with things like chronic fatigue syndrome, we also get um, many people who experience POTS. So often hand in hand with chronic fatigue syndrome, we get a lot of people who may experience POTS. So postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, where someone may experience dizziness, increase in heart rate, or even blackouts, especially when moving from sitting to standing or lying down to standing. And our blood pressure is regulated by the autonomic nervous system. So if someone is experiencing low blood pressure or POTS type symptoms, this is again where that nervous system work comes in. But if our blood volume is low, that's going to put extra strain on the heart to maintain blood flow. And it's also going to put strain on blood pressure. And so this is where, you know, we often hear about people with high blood pressure being a problem. And of course, if your blood pressure is high, this part of the podcast is maybe not specifically for you. But if your blood pressure is low or you tend to have these POTSI type symptoms, then we really want to think about how we can support it. One of the best things you can do is through increasing dietary salt. So salt or sodium in your diet, possibly supplementing with electrolytes, those with a high sodium content. Very often when people become unwell, they change their diet and they change their diet to be healthier. But in doing so, they may cut out a lot of processed foods. They may in some cases even avoid salting their food because they've heard that salt is supposed to be bad for them and as a consequence they actually have a very low sodium diet which can put strain on the adrenal glands and you know can put strain on our blood pressure so in a lot of cases I actually recommend to clients that they salt their food um, they can supplement with electrolytes or they can actively seek to eat salty foods which are still going to be healthy so for example you know, pickled foods and olives and cured meats, you know, provided they're, you know, cured in a healthy way with not a lot of other additives and preservatives can all be really fantastic sources of salt. We can also experience issues with blood pressure due to stress and due to poor sleep or even in some cases over exercising but increasing your electrolytes increasing your salt intake can be a quick win in this case 
So that does bring me to the end of the oxygenation episode for this podcast. I hope you've made some notes, you've got some things that you can think about, you've got some things that you can begin to work on. And always a reminder, if you found this episode useful, please leave a five-star review. Please share it with your friends or anybody who you think that this information would benefit. When you leave a review, when you share the podcast, it helps other people find this information. And in doing so, we can all recover and be healthy together. So wishing you a wonderful day and I will see you in the next episode.